0: Our accomplished violinist this morning is the mother of Pastor David Ward. Star Ward, thank you very much. Do you do impressions too? You don't. Well, David doesn't play the violin either, so I guess that's that's fair enough. Thank you very much for your ministry this morning. And uh, today is the last day that Mark will be with us in ministry here uh, how much we've appreciated his work on staff. And at the end of July, on Sunday night, 27th, isn't it, he is going to do a concert. And I think that night, are you not also going to have a brand new release? That's the plan. The plan is he's going to have a CD that he is producing with some of his work on the synthesizer, and it'll be released that night. It'll be the premier night. So we're looking forward to that evening, Mike. And after the service today, Paula will be out in the lobby and uh, by a table there with some of her music and stop by and say hello to her and take some of that home with you let's open our Bibles together now please to first corinthians chapter nine the revolutionary war in 1776 was a struggle for freedom this week we remember the signing of the declaration of independence and the colony said to britain we are a free people There were many champions of freedom in those days. Washington, Jefferson, Franklin. Another one who made a statement that many of us learned in school years ago was Patrick Henry, who was from the Virginia colony and who was a delegate to both the First and Second Continental Congresses. Patrick Henry, speaking before a group of Virginians, however, in 1775 was arguing for a defense within the state of Virginia against Britain and made the statement, as to what others may choose to do, what others may choose what course they will as for me, give me liberty or give me death. He was a champion of freedom and today as we look in First Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to see another champion of freedom, and that is the Apostle Paul. There was no one who championed the Christian freedom from the law or argued more articulately against legalism than the Apostle Paul. In the book of Galatians, he called rule-keeping as a means for pleasing God a yoke of slavery. He declared it to be a false gospel. The Apostle Paul boasted of his freedom and of our rights as Christians, as those who are liberated from the bondage of keeping rules and obeying man-made traditions. And yet, though Paul was the champion of Christian freedom, he also warned that we Christians must not use our freedom for self-service. He warned that we must not use our rights so that we can do what pleases ourselves. Paul insists that we must use our liberty for Christ's sake, and limit our rights for what brings good to others. I begin reading in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews, to those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law, to those who are without law, as without law, although not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the game exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we and imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. And so the Apostle says that for Christ's sake we must limit our liberties, our rights, so that we may do what is for the ultimate good of others. That of course is the way Jesus himself lived. He said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many how far that spirit seems to be from many Christians today, who want to be served and not to be bothered with service, and who want to insist on their rights while neglecting the needs of others, and who seem to think that somehow we have been saved to enjoy the good life of materialistic America. In chapter 8, the Apostle Paul acknowledges Christian liberty, He says in that chapter, as we have studied, that we are not in bondage to the ignorant worship of idols and to the taboos that surround that. But he balances what he says in that chapter about liberty against Christian love, which means putting others before oneself. The chief false religion of our age is in fact the worship of oneself adoring, esteeming, living for, exalting one's self, which is exactly the opposite of the worship of Jesus Christ, who calls his people to self-sacrifice, not self-worship. Indeed, there is nothing as self-destructive as self-worship. Our walk with God delivers us from that destruction. Now in chapter 9 the Apostle goes on to apply this principle of limiting liberty to himself as David preached to you last week regarding his own situation of his rights as an Apostle. And now I will move us further further ahead in our text as we think about the Apostle's application of this principle of limiting self-liberty. Christian liberty, And he says to us, in essence, in this paragraph we have read, I will determine, he says, to live for the sake of others and the gospel. Paul says, I determine to live for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. You see, it is that kind of choice that makes life truly worth living and which in the end will bring us eternal reward. The world's notion that living for others will rob you of a meaningful and happy life is wrong. I invite you, for example, to compare two people whose spiritual status I do not comment upon, but whose lives are significantly in the opposite direction. On the one hand, consider Donald Trump who represents all that our age seeks to worship. And opposite Donald Trump placed a Mother Teresa, for example, who lives for the poor of Calcutta and other cities of the world. Tell me, which is happier? And whose life is going to make a difference in the end? Donald Trump or Mother Teresa? Paul, in this text, draws three pictures of himself as he sought to apply this principle of self-sacrifice to his own life. In the first place, in verses 19 through 23, he says for the gospel's sake, he serves as a slave. A slave, you see, really has no personal rights. Now, Paul said in the beginning, I'm free from all men. He claims, I have rights, but he says, I have chosen rather to forego my rights and to enslave myself to all men. You see, Paul understood that his purpose in being alive was found in something other than living for his own pursuit. Now consider who's saying this. It is Paul the Apostle. Paul, one of the writers of scripture. Paul, the greatest missionary in the history of the Christian church. Paul, one of the most brilliant men of the ancient world, of whom we would likely have heard even if he had never become a Christian. Such was his brilliance. But this man chose to limit his rights for sake of the debt that he felt he owed to others. And why did he do this? He tells us that he might win the more. That he might gain the more. The word gain here means to make profit. Paul is not thinking of money. He is thinking of souls. He says, I am willing to enslave myself to all that I might win the more to Christ. You see, Paul had a vision of the world as the Lord sees the world. And so he accommodated himself that he might win others to Christ. He accommodates himself to the Jews, he says in verse 20. Those who are under the law. Those who feel compelled because of their traditions to obey vows and dietary laws and ceremonial regulations. That's what Paul was, a Jew. He says, I'm no longer under the law myself. But he says, nonetheless, I will abide under the Jewish law when it's necessary, so that I may win my kinsmen to Christ. Indeed, Paul so loved his Jewish brothers that he was willing, had it been possible, to be severed from Christ if only they would come to faith. In verse 21, he says that he accommodates himself to the Gentiles, those who have no law, those who are ignorant of the Old Testament regulations. And so when he went wherever there were Gentiles, he sought to live as they did. He ate what they ate. He dressed as they would dress. He followed their traditions so as far as the traditions did not contradict the moral law of God. Paul says, I'm not irresponsible, I don't live an unregulated life. He says, I'm not without law to God, but he says, actually, what I am is in law to Christ. is his little play on words here. Paul did not compromise God's moral standards, but he did accommodate himself to the customs of the people. The Gentiles, whom he sought to reach. This is the whole principle of what's called contextualization. It is the job of a missionary going into a culture to understand the, the cultural context and to accommodate his lifestyle and insofar as he can the message itself so that the people in that culture from their context can understand it and see the truth that is in Christ. That's what Paul is saying here, and that's how you and I are to live as as well, in the culture in which we live, to understand what's happening in our culture, and in so far as we can to contextualize the message without compromising it itself. But then Paul says in verse 22 that he accommodates himself to the weak brothers, those who are weak whose consciences are easily touched. He says he is willing to limit his freedom among them that he might accommodate himself to their weaker understanding of things. Now understand when Paul says he made himself a slave to these, he is not saying that he compromised the gospel. This last week there was a letter in the Minneapolis newspaper from the rector of the Basilica of Mary in in, uh, Minneapolis a man who surely must be one of the most liberal of the Roman Catholic leaders in our region. And he argues that those who are absolutists, that is, those who believe that Jesus Christ is what he said he is, the way, the truth, and the life, have been the source of a lot of problems. And that what we need to do is understand that there are many truths. Well, that is the pluralistic lie of our age that this religious leader is articulating. What he says flies in the face of what Paul preached. Paul the Apostle, for he was an absolutist. He believed that there was one gospel, and that one gospel was to be found in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, we are absolutists too, if we follow Jesus Christ. There are not many truths, there is one, and Paul knew that, he didn't compromise it. Nor does what he say here indicate that he was involved in the sins of others to win them. Nor is he saying here that somehow he was a chameleon. That he changed his convictions depending upon which group he was with. He did change his practice, but not his convictions. Paul's heart was to identify with all people. Just as just as Jesus Christ identified himself with us and yet did not partake in our sins or condone it, but he identified with us so that he might declare the Father to us. So the point here is this, that for the gospel's sake, you and I need to see ourselves as servants without a claim to our personal rights, without demanding our ways. So that our master's plan for the winning of the world may be realized. We need to adjust our habits, our choices, our preferences in order to win souls. We need to adapt our way of living in order to make others more receptive to our message. In the sense that Paul is saying here that he served as a slave. Now secondly, as Paul moves ahead beginning in verse 24, he says, for the gospel's sake, He ran as a runner. Corinth was the location of what was called the Isthmian Games, one of the four national festivals of the Greeks. The Isthmian Games involved horse, foot, and chariot racing, wrestling, boxing, musical and poetic trials, and animal contests. To the victor was given a garland of leaves or a wreath of pine as a symbol of his victory. Paul is drawing upon this athletic metaphor so that he can make an analogy with us in our Christian life. Paul is saying here in essence that the runner is every believer. It's you and it's me. We are also running in the race. The race is the course of life that God has laid before us. No course exactly the same. Courses that are of different lengths, that we each have a race to run. It is the will of God. And there's the finish line, where Christ stands and will give his approval at the judgment. Now there are some obvious contrasts, aren't there, between the Isthmian games and what Paul writes. The one is an earthly race, the other a heavenly race. In one, there is one winner, to him the wreath. In the other case, every Christian can be a winner by running his course well. To the one, there is a corruptible crown that fades within days. To the other, an incorruptible crown of glory received from Christ himself. So Paul's point is this that as runners in our race, we are to run to win. We as Christians must be wholehearted in this thing. There are some things that may be okay for the average person, but for a Christian athlete, they are off-bound. Now, we have liberty. Oh, of course we do. The Paul says, if you want to win the race, you must forego some of your liberties." John MacArthur says, the athlete's disciplined self-control is a rebuke of the half-hearted, out-of-shape Christians who do almost nothing to prepare themselves to witness to the lost, and consequently seldom do. Yes, we have freedom in Jesus Christ, we have rights, but we also have a race. And Paul says there are times when we must put aside our freedoms. We must discipline ourselves, we must be self-controlled. An athlete has to watch what he eats. He has to train rigorously, he has to pace himself. And so we in our race, likewise, must be disciplined and willing to set aside our rights in order to live in such a way and to run our race in such a way that we win people to Christ and cross that goal line to Christ. well done. And so his point here is this, that for the gospel's sake, you and I need to see our lives as a race and we must go all out to win. We must not expect to, as the hymn writer says, be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fight to win the prize and sail through bloody seas. We must give our best efforts. We must discipline ourselves with self-control And lay aside the extraneous, lay aside the luxuries of life to win. And then Paul draws a third picture, a servant, a runner. He says, for the gospel's sake, he fights as a fighter. Ancient boxing was a serious game. The fists of the boxer were wrapped in leather thongs, And in the leather thongs, there were studs of metal knobs. That's how they boxed in those days, not the tatted boxing gloves of today. Paul is saying here in these last verses that he was not playing at this thing of being a Christian. He was not shadow boxing. He sought to make every blow count many Christians today are playing games with God. Paul says this is a boxing match that is deadly serious. The disciplined boxer must have mastery over his fleshly appetites. Paul pictures here as though it were his body, and by that he means the appetites that appeal to his flesh including being easy on oneself, enjoying the luxuries of a society and a culture like ours in America. Paul says here, I buffet my body. Literally says, I strike it under the eye. I make it black and blue, that it might be my slave. He says, I will not become the slave of the appetites of my body. What he saying? He warns that if indeed we do that, we become disqualified. Disqualified. Last night, Mike Tyson was disqualified. He bit the ear of Alexander Holyfield. My goodness, have you ever heard of such a thing in boxing? He twice bit the ear. Did he had not have dinner before he boxed or what? The end of the third round disqualified, furious, angry about it. He broke the rules. And he failed in his challenge to regain his title. And he should. Disqualified. Paul had one fear in life. And that was that after he had even preached to others, that somehow he would allow his body's appetite to so overcome him, and life would become such a comfortable thing, and so easy, that he would be disqualified in his match. And so his point is that for the gospel's sake, you and I need to live not to be disqualified we need to finish well we do not want to become sidetracked on self-focused pursuits but we must discipline our own desires and train hard and give up pleasing ourselves for the sake of winning others to christ paul's whole life had one focus it had one point and that's found in verse 23 I do all things for the sake of the gospel. That was it. Everything that Paul did was read through that grid. It was measured by that standard. I do all things for the gospel. In a self culture like ours, we have to ask ourselves some hard questions. I was reminded of this recently in a conversation with my good friend, our retired missionary, Homer Payne. who dropped by the office one day just to chat before he left for Bolivia. And he said to me, Galen, we are the Laodicean church. And I reacted to that a little bit. I said, well, you mean that this is the age of the Laodicean church he says no we are we in America are the Laodicean church and I really haven't gotten over yet what that said to my heart we are so soft so rich so increased with goods so comfortable so filled with our luxuries that we are lukewarm in our commitment to Jesus Christ. Jesus calls upon us to repent of that lukewarmness, our self-sufficiency, and to come to him and buy what we truly need we need to ask ourselves hard questions like what is the value of a soul to me? Am I willing to invest to my own loss in the work of Jesus Christ for the sake of a soul? Am I willing to lay aside my own pursuits and interests for the good of another? very practical message today. How, how willing are we to adjust the time that we arrive at church in order to accommodate a new ministry that will gain the more? This fall, all of us will be called upon to make that kind of an adjustment. And yet we, some of us, repel at the idea of having to change the time that we arrive at church but I ask, where is the spirit of verse 23 in that sort of attitude? How willing are we to change the room that we meet in? Think of it. Think of the embarrassment of really even having to ask that question. How willing are we to even change the room that we meet in for the sake of the gospel? How willing are we to lay aside our own preferences in music or in preaching or whatever for the sake of the gospel? You and I can only be doers of the word of God if we will apply what verse 23 says. If we don't apply that, then let's call ourselves hearers of the word who deceive ourselves. Because that's what James says that we are. Paul says, you have a change for me. You have a culture that I need to identify with. You have people I need to reach. I am willing to do whatever it takes. In limiting my own taste and my own preferences, I am willing to do whatever it takes. For the sake of the gospel, that I may be a partaker of it with others that yet need to be reached. Corey ten Boom said, The measure of life, after all, is not its duration, but its donation. It's what I'm willing to give. One reason that we can hear a testimony like the Nicholsons gave this morning is because... They gave to the ministry of the church. We receive back from ministry in proportion to what we are willing to give to it. Just a bottom line principle. We receive from ministry in proportion to what we give. That is the true measure of life, and it is to that principle that Paul calls us in this text today. So by the grace of God, let's live what verse 23 says, which Paul applies in very practical ways. I do all things. Just tell me what needs to be done, says Paul. I'll do all things for the sake of the gospel. What an attitude. And that's why Paul was such a winner. Let's pray. Father, may we be winners too in our attitudes, in our service, and adopt the attitude of life that he had for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to remain seated now as we have the opportunity to give. And to tell Paula that we've appreciated her ministry this morning. God bless you as you give. Ushers will come now as she sings. Thank you. I'm going to-